This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Hello and welcome to episode six of Matt D'Elia is Confused. This is a really cool episode. I'm really excited about this episode. Um, I got to talk to someone who I'm truly fascinated with and greatly admire. Um, her name is Vanessa Place, and she is a lawyer, a public defender, and a conceptual artist, which is an insanely cool and unique one, too. Um, most of our conversation is based sort of around... Um, the piece that uh, through which I discovered Vanessa and her work, which is um, a performance piece and book called You Had to Be There, colon, Rape Jokes, um, which is in book form is literally 45 pages of rape jokes that she found online, uh, some of which she wrote herself that without context. It's literally just the jokes in this big typeface. It's, it's just insane and super fucking, uh, controversial. And I was really excited to talk to her about it. Um, because I find that, uh, as we move forward, things like that, that really are meant to be as Vanessa and I discuss sort of rocks in the shoe, uh, uh, that, that kind of art has sort of begun to fall by the wayside. And I think it's more important now than ever. Um, that's one of the things we talk about. We talk about a lot of stuff though. Um, and I think it's a really cool conversation and I think she's a really, really, um, uniquely interesting figure, uh, at the moment, uh, we're in right now. We, we get into cancel culture a bit, um, her own experience being canceled. Um, just a lot of really interesting, timely shit. And, uh, yeah, I'm excited for you guys to hear it. So here is my conversation with Vanessa Place. Kate! Vanessa? Yes. Hey, it's Matt. How you doing? Good. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for uh, doing this. I uh, really appreciate sure. your time. Um, if you're ready, we can just jump right in. Sure. Let's do it. Okay, great. Vanessa Place, thank you so much for joining me on Matt D'Elia is Confused. Uh, I'm really excited to talk to you, and I feel like there's so much to talk about um, because you do so much, you've done so much, and you have a lot to say about things that I'm really interested in. And um, if you just want to give my listeners, maybe if you could just like a however long or short version of an introduction, perhaps uh, of, of yourself, the way in your own words. Um, let's see. In my own words, I would say that I work with language in various ways. So part of what I do is write. Part of what I do is practice criminal appellate law. Part of what I do is performance and um, kind of conceptual art that it all it all basically revolves around language. Right. I kind of look at everything I do as being somewhat the same, which has to do with sculpting language. Right. Um, and w so 
the the you being a lawyer and an artist is something that I am just immediately struck by. And uh, was one like first for you? Like, how did those one fold into the other, and 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 how does that come about for for you? Well, I think that in practice, what happened was a bit of a failure of imagination mm-hmm. that. I didn't uh, grow up in an environment where the practice of art was tenable. Right. So went to law school, and but basically it all ended up being kind of the same thing, uh, which had to do with my understanding of the law increasingly as being about the movement of language. And I began writing, and then began performing, and so, but oftentimes I'll appropriate some of my legal work into my art practice, and then maybe bring a bit of the eye or ear of the artist into the legal work as well, though that's much less appreciated. Sure. I can imagine, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, and and I think, I think to start with, I think what I'm most interested in is sort of your the way you sort of push on things that are, I mean, you know, you had to be there. Uh, your show, uh, rape, rape jokes mm-hmm. show is something that when I first heard about it, I was, I feel like I had to like sit down for a second and be like, well, what the fuck do I think about that? And I, and I wish, and I hope one day I'll be able to see it live. But if, 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 if you could just sort of, Tell us briefly about that before we get into specific about it uh, in, in your own words. What, yeah, what that is. and yeah. that project, and part of what I would say is that the, the the legal aspect, I think, kind of comes out in the aesthetic practice in the sense of I almost feel that everything I do is a bit of an argument mm. in the context of an event. So mm. part of the point of it is to set up a performance or a an encounter, whether it's sound or me live or something, where what happens is is that not unlike in a trial or something like that, whatever you think you thought can become subject to thinking further about or questioning. Right. And so the Rape Jokes project started out when there was a few years ago a, things on social media about rape jokes and people comics telling rape jokes mm. and how this was not a, okay, you know, there at least the Twitter feed that I would see, this is not okay because they're not funny. Mm-hmm. It's tantamount to another act of violation. And I thought when I was seeing that, I remember thinking, but they are funny. We find them funny. Mm-hmm. And so what is it about that? And also there's the, what's the difference between, so I started looking up places online where people tell each other these kinds of jokes. And what I started to realize is that, one, there is something about this particular kind of joke that that they function almost as the purest form of joke mm. in, this, in, almost, in a Freudian sense, mm. where the joke is a way to discharge hostility, and especially around the obscene and all of that, then a rape joke is the ultimate joke. Right. But also, what's the difference of... So, for example, with the stand-up comic, they may tell one joke, two jokes mm-hmm. that are about rape. But what happens if I stand up there, as and obviously being a woman and all of this, and I tell 240 jokes, rape mm. jokes? 
yeah. almost all from the point of view of the perpetrator mm. and what happens over the time that this occurs. And when I started performing this this piece, what I noticed was that the audience members who, in the beginning of the performance, and I would sort of say parenthetically, I always told them in a an art context. Mm. So I wasn't in a comedy club right. where the audience already, the frame is, this is supposed to be funny. The mm. frame is, in an art context is, okay, maybe it's, we don't know mm-hmm. how we're supposed to receive right. it. But what I found was that the audience members who started off laughing, at some point it's too much. Mm. And it's not funny anymore. And the audience members who started off rejecting the joke, at some point, a joke was funny to them, which was my standard for selecting the jokes was on some level, was it kind of funny? Right. And the, the argument that I was making in part was, you know, there is no difference between rape culture and culture. This is our culture. Mm. And that's why we can find these jokes funny. We may not find all of them funny. Sure. But at some point, there's the, the recognition, the turn, the way a joke functions. And that's when you're implicated in it. Right, right, right. I, I've, I've read you talk a little bit about, um, and I, I might be using my own words here to describe something you've said, but just this, this idea of being comforted by, quote unquote, art which is more just entertainment and the idea of being challenged and drawing that distinction. Um, uh, Mm -hmm. If you want to talk about that a little bit, because what you're doing in my eyes is the, it's this show and, and as well, the book as well is it's, it's, it's the, one of the most challenging things because it's, it's, it's actually, especially as, as I'm, as I read the book, it's just big, big type and the jokes just laid out bare and it's, it's, and they just keep, they just, so to speak, keep coming. Yeah, yeah, they keep coming, and there's it. It becomes this contextless thing, obviously by design, and I find that really interesting. And also, the challenge of just even the the premise of what you're doing is even greater with without your you being sort of handed any any right. idea right. from you about how to handle it. You know what I mean? So if, if um, and I, and I'm, I'm very interested. Which is part in of right, and that's part of my my argument, so to speak, is that. The world of law, by comparison, is a highly functional world. Mm. I say language in a courtroom, or and it does something. Mm-hmm. Something happens. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I love about the world of art is, or the way I see it, is that it actually has this capacity to be a, a situation in which something is suspended. We don't have to decide. Right. We don't have to decide if it's beautiful. We don't have to decide if it's good. It, it functions almost like a statue or an object where you can kind of walk around it, mm. experience it over time, and maybe have a, a number of different reactions to it, some of which may be contradictory. Mm. And so to create, in my work, it's I'm very interested in creating a kind of event in which that's, that's foregrounded, mm. that sense of suspension and that sense of if there's a challenge, you should be able to resolve it right away. Mm-hmm. Just like on any level, even if the challenge is, is this beautiful, is it not beautiful? If I can absorb it quickly, I, it, it, it is entertainment or it is decoration. Right, yeah. yeah. It's but a... if it can hold the capacity for kind of for an ambiguity, 
and a reflection and a second thought, a third thought, a fourth thought. Right. Then, then it's functioning for me aesthetically. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the idea of that discomfort, I think that is the first step along the, uh, along that sort of track that no one hops off of. It seems like to towards offense, you know, it's like this discomfort. They don't know what to do with it. They don't know where to place it. And especially if it's something right. like even the word rape alone is going to be offensive to some people because they've decided it's true, you know, and then that, that discomfort just because they don't know where to place it, it just takes them to that least common denominator place of this is outrageous. This is offensive. Right. Right, And it can even function in the opposite way where if I, if I label whatever work it is, say transgressive, for example, mm -hmm. then I've already handed you the bit where you walk in, you have the feeling of discomfort, but you know, you're supposed to have that. Right. Yeah. So you're already comforted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And so for that, for this show, I don't know, do you still do this show anywhere? The rape jokes? Um, I haven't performed. I've had a very hard time finding a venue that would host it in the United States. Yeah, I guess that's a good segue into what, what it, this conversation, where this conversation naturally goes, which is not the response in the actual live setting, but the response in the broader sort of cultural social sense. And I, I would imagine just, I mean, I've, I've read it a little bit, but you're, you've experienced it firsthand. The pushback on something like this now must just be, I would imagine just out of hand people without even hearing it, without even reading it, without anything, they just immediately reject it and try to sideline you. I, I would imagine. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. And that's that's more or less accurate. Yeah, I, I what I find, and I find it, and it is per, not particular to American culture, but it's pervasive. I think in American mm -hmm. culture, is this need to like or not like immediately. Yeah, and and as you say, without without going through an experience of it and foreclosing it, mm -hmm. foreclosing the experience. Right. So I have. When I've done the performances, I may have members of the audience that have difficulty and that can be addressed or not addressed or addressed in different ways, but at least the audience has gone through the performance. Right. So they have, they have that feeling about it versus, again, in the U.S., what ends up happening is, well, even venues that might be open to something like that will say, well, we just can't. Right. Or... People will say, I just can't have, I can't be spending the next so, so many months explaining why I did this event. Right, yeah. I mean, it's almost just this war of attrition, I feel like, with people who might want to put it on. It's just they, they must be getting it from all sides the same way you are. And then it becomes this almost too much of a headache to even bother, which I, I think is like at the crux of the problem, you know, because even people who might want to put your show on, just the implication of it for them and their business model or their reputation or whatever it may be makes them not put it on. And then you're, it's the same thing as, as canceling you ultimately, because the, the result is you don't do the show. And yeah. And aside from me personally, I mean, you know, fine, we're not fine, but the, the larger point I think is, is that it becomes, we become a culture that is incapable of exposing ourselves to possibly more, I don't know, a, a, a bigger, 
width of response or more of a philosophic engagement with things. Right. Or even just that that sort of analog, I thought this then, and then upon a reflection or a change in cultural circumstance, I think something else, mm. or having a conversation around it. Or, for example, once I did one of these performances and the uh, curators were very insistent that there be a Q&A afterwards. Mm. And so I said, okay, fine. But the fact is, is I'm not going to really answer questions right, about right, right. the piece because then that, again, puts me in the sort of position of mastery and framing it and directing the discourse around it. So what I did was said, okay, that, yeah, fine, we'll do a Q&A. And then I finished the performance and I basically picked up my bag and walked out. Mm. And afterwards, I was confronted by someone who said, well, there was supposed to be a Q&A. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, there was. There were questions, there were answers. Mm-hmm. But you don't need me for that. Right, yeah. Yeah, there's this kind of race to the end of, you know, everybody sort of... It's not even that they insist, it's that they ultimately expect it to be clear. And if it's not, then they expect you to clarify and I think that this is a problem and it sort of negates the whole purpose of what you're doing in the first place. You know, I, I, I think that, and I actually, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about where I, I, I don't know where that really comes from, like what the root of that is, because I find that it's becoming more and more, I mean, cancel. Uh, when did you start doing the, this show, this show in particular? Uh, this show, I started doing a version of it, a smaller version of it, I'm going to say maybe about three years ago, four years ago. And so in that period, was the response, is it more sort of, you can't do this anywhere? Is that yeah. more now or is yeah. that more then? It's more now. Yeah, that's interesting. It's definitely yeah. more now. And it's more in the United States than in Europe. I've had, I've had much better reception of this project and other projects in Europe. And what I would say, going back to your point, which I think is the the larger issue, is that what I've seen increasingly in the United States is this really profound desire for authority and authoritarianism. Mm -hmm. And so the demand put on the artist to be the authority, Mm -hmm. the demand that the audience puts on itself, that there be some sort of um, final verdict. Mm. And we don't need a trial, we just have a verdict. Right, right, right. And the verdict is usually some sort of prescription. Right, yeah. And whether it's we don't want this person to come speak to this university, whether it's we don't want this kind of performance to occur, there's a there's an exclusion that that is always the I don't know, I mean that's that's the gesture of the authority. Mm-hmm. It's to prescribe. Yeah, the 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 the, the cancel cultures, the canceling, uh, the, that alignment with authority is, I find, particularly troublesome because the, the, the plea to cancel is made to 
the quote unquote authority, whether that be the dean of a university right. or the person putting on a show or any anyone really. And I, I think that that is sort of it just reminds me of being a little kid in, 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 the, in, the, in the tattletale thing. You know what I mean? And it's just I find that if, if I don't want to look at something or listen to something, then I'm not going to look at it or listen to it. I'm not I, I don't have the urge to try to shut something down. And the shutting down is where I get a little bit lost. And it's interesting that you say from 2016 to now it's gotten worse because I, I, I almost look at that as, as a direct sort of alignment with the, the election of Trump and then this idea that because he's sitting there in the White House every day being this ultimate villain – and, and there's nothing to do about getting rid of that guy. It's like it, there's there's this almost feeding frenzy on anything that is offensive, and and to get rid of it immediately, I almost feel like this, the the Trump it's dovetailed in this way that's made it that much worse because people are so ready to pounce on anything that might not be quote unquote per, safe. Per, perhaps, but I think that actually, in a kind of more. Um, expansive way mm -hmm. what it seems to me is that both of these things are born out of the same desire mm. in the sense that there's this drive to authority and to exclusion mm -hmm. and and to make a wall right so right. okay on one side you make a wall to keep the mexicans out mm -hmm. or something mm -hmm. on another side you make a wall to keep the conservatives out right or the the triggering out. So it's the same response, it's the same gesture, it's just the thing you want to keep out, the thing that is the, the threat from outside right. or inside, and so we have to make them outside. Right. You know, we either get rid of the people in the country or we get rid of the people in the social media, but there's this, this gesture, this drive for purification. Yeah. And I, which I think maybe um, have been accelerated or mm. exacerbated by Trump, but I also feel like that's where we've been going. Right. And part of it may be a kind of profound effect of social media where mm. I grow up thinking I should be around my friends all the time. I should, I should not have to encounter, I, should, I mean, the language of Twitter is very telling. Why should I have followers? Right. Oh no, but that's a given. You of course should have and the more followers the better. Well right. that when you say it that way it starts to sound a little strange. It does, yeah. That that's the drive. You know, why should I have as many friends as possible? Right. And so into this kind of utopian structure of there's it's all homogenous or and but also there's in the kind of relational structure, what's also built in is antagonism. Right, yeah. Because in order, you're constantly filtering, you're constantly testing, you're blocking, you're keeping somebody out. Yeah, the, the, the shunning, I mean, the shunning from the top down when you're, when you're just sort of, if you're in this, um, it's so easy to get lost in an echo chamber and you're not even, it's like you're not even able to hear something else. And I think that, when you're stuck in that and you're not even aware of it is when it gets really dangerous because 
there's a wall being created and you are on one side and you don't even know right. that you're, there is a wall. And you that, keep building it. Right. Yeah. You keep adding bricks constantly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, and, go ahead. No. And, it, and so I think that's where it starts to get really interesting, mm. which is that, oh, if we're all operating on it, where does that come from? Mm-hmm. And is it that going back even now, now we've got a generation of people who grew up after September 11th. Mm-hmm. And so on some profound level, they grew up thinking they should be safe. Right. That that's the primary function of society is to keep you safe. Yeah. I mean, the, the safe, the safety thing and the, the pursuit of safety above all else especially at on an institutional level, for instance, at, at mm-hmm. a university, I find, I mean, it just seems like the actually exact opposite of, of what should be prized. Not that things should be dangerous to, for the sake of it, but in the university is already this sort of closed system. And the idea for me is to be challenged there to prepare you for the world that is a challenge, you know, because if you're in class and it's safe and there's nothing to, I don't know, offend you, what about when you leave class? There's nothing safe about the world at large. So creating these contrived safe spaces where you're not going to even hear the word rape or something like this, or you're not going to read some book that might offend you because of the synopsis on the back of the book. I, I just, I think that that makes actively makes everything so much worse and makes everyone so much more the ready to call offense at anything and, and sort of miss yeah, the first and, and again, you're, you're participating in a structure in which there has to be an authority mm-hmm. yeah. making sure that the space is safe. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The appeal to authority, and which yeah. is not going to be you. Right. Right. And then, then, or if you take up that mantle, you're the authority. Right securing the safety and it and at some point it does become the thing of and you know yes there's a difference between safe a safe space being i should be able to walk to and from my dorm right and not be attacked but maybe within the confines of an intellectual discussion i could feel a little bit violated i could feel a little bit upset dislocated taken by surprise within the confines of art the same right yeah, this isn't, this isn't, I'm not, this isn't standing on a street corner and screaming something at someone. Right, yeah. And even when that happens, we have a way of negotiating mm-hmm. But I think that, again, this sort of profound drive to, so to speak, call the cops mm-hmm. or be the cops and then choose which cops we want to be mm-hmm. as if the choice of arresting official is really the issue. It was funny, I was at the Whitney Biennial a little while ago, and there was a piece that was sort of this abstract sculptural piece. And I looked at the wall text, and the wall text said, oh, this is a piece about mastery and domination in the world of ballet. Mm. And I remember thinking, well, clearly the issue is not that there's a problem with mastery and domination, because the wall text is exerting a form of mastery and domination. (laughs) Right, right by directing exactly how I'm supposed to interpret it. So I guess it's just we don't like it in the world of ballet. But then I'm thinking, but 
it seems like if mastery and domination is going to be okay anywhere, perhaps the world of ballet is <laughs> right, right, right. Not, not the worst place for yeah, it. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. But it just felt like a you know another form of oh, really the thing we don't like is such a tiny symptom, mm-hmm. but we adore the larger thing. Right, right. I, and you know, I think also. I mean, this seems so obvious to me, but I think that the, the, the bigger, I think when, when I think about this outside of the world of art, especially and uh, canceling or sidelining or muting anything from a certain forum doesn't make it go away. It only makes it go somewhere else. And, and just as a rule, I'd rather know what the people I disagree with or even the people I fear are talking about because I, it's, but it's also, yeah. And they're also in your community. I mean, this sort of, it's a sort of form of intellectual gentrification. Right. Right. Yeah, it is. Right. I don't care if it exists as long as I don't have to see it. Right. Yeah. And it doesn't intrude on my community. Right. Yeah. Gen- yeah. That is, that, that is intellectual gentrification. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. I, uh, I, it just, it, it could, it, when I feel like that drives, like you, you're, like you're saying, it makes the wall taller and bigger. Uh, if you're, if you're constantly insisting that nothing that you want to hear can be heard, I just find that strange in general, but in the, in, in specifically in the world of art, uh, I find it maybe not more insidious, but, but to art itself, I find it to be very defeating because if as an artist, I mean, I find this to be a pervasive idea among artists right now about, Oh, I, you know, in the film world, I'm a film writer and, and I, and I know a lot of writers who really worry about the kinds of things they're saying, the kinds of characters they're writing, even from like a race gender point of view. And, and it, and it doesn't, it seems dishonest. It seems dishonest to say, well, I, I'm writing this thing, this idea that I had. It seems just as dishonest to make someone arbitrarily a male character as it does a female character or racially sort of dividing them up evenly, however you want to say it. I find it to be really dishonest in, 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 in a, from the idea phase. And, and it, once it's out in the world, it, then it just it is the thing that it already is and it seems like it was made and you don't know how it got made. But I find this this mm-hmm. self censorship at the base level, at the idea level, to be the most insidious thing, you know. Because because if you had this idea for you, for for you had to be there, and you just thought, mm-hmm. well, I don't, no one rape is touchy, and I don't think people are going to put on the show, then the world doesn't even get the chance to 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 contend with it. And and I think that that is actually the worst part. It almost is bending the will of of the artist in a way before the art even gets pen to paper, you know? Right. And part of it is, I mean, the film world is a little bit different, but part of it in the art world and not all of the art world, but there is the, at least the possibility of doing something where the, the idea isn't necessarily, this already has to be decorative or commercial mm-hmm. or something that people will like, you know, I've, there's a 
you know, there's a couple of things, but one is sort of like uh, one point I was thinking about Gertrude Stein. And so, well, mm-hmm. when did Gertrude Stein become a great writer? Mm-hmm. Was she a great writer in 1913 when she's writing, but nobody's publishing her? Right. Because it seems horrible. Is she a great writer in 1945 when Alice B. Tocas comes out and some people buy the book? Mm-hmm. Is she a great writer in 1978 when the first dissertations start being written about her work explaining why? It's great. Mm. Or is it in 1996 when the Library of America publishes her collection? Mm-hmm. And so this is part of the issue. If she, somebody, if she had started in 1913 saying, well, nobody's buying this, or the way I'm describing America's offenses to people, mm-hmm. then the work doesn't get done. Yeah. Right. And by the same token, there is this sort of notion, I think, in the art world where either either the work is commercially viable and so you're kind of censoring or sculpting or making work around that notion uh-huh. or the work has to be sort of laudable on its surface socially. Right, right, right. In which case there's better ways to do that. Right. And you're again draining the work of of ambiguity. Right. Because and that is the possibility of something, that it can show multiple facets, multiple, that can, can hold this, the beautiful and the brutal at the same time. Right. Yeah, I mean, the commercial or the, or the, I mean, there's obviously, and again, just to bring it back to what I do in the film world, there's the obviously commercial things like a stupid fucking superhero movie or something. But then there's also the social, the social message thing where it's it can be overbearingly clear in a way mm-hmm. that is it's somewhat fear-based of of making sure the audience understands and doesn't misconstrue the message because if you're peddling in some some kind of um touchy subject i think a lot of times as a f- i think a lot of times artists want to make sure they're clear that they're saying the right thing instead of you know again what you're saying is to seek the ambiguity but I think it's that's almost zapped immediately all the time because the clarity of making it this social message uh, zaps it of the ambiguity itself, you know. And I think that almost in the same way something is made to make money, uh, hitting all those beats that it has to hit in the eyes of a studio or whoever, is the same way with like a social message movie, you know. And the whole idea with a, a message piece where the message is clear whether it's a movie or an art installation or anything, I, I get, I don't know when it's, when it's so fucking clear, it, it almost is like, well, why did you, why did you make why it? Why bother? Why did you make it? Yeah. You can write an editorial. That's right. Fine. Exactly. 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 Do what, you know, join a protest. Totally. That's yeah. fine. But you know, I think of, I have a, a love of opera uh-huh. and sort of bel canto opera. And you have to think about the Tosca. Uh huh. Right, so the story of Tosca includes the murder and execution of suicide mm-hmm. and the attempted rape with all this beautiful music wrapped around mm-hmm. it. So part of the message, so to speak, of Tosca is love is a violence. Mm-hmm. And it's a beautiful violence. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't, there's no thing in the beginning of the show that says we're not condoning. Right murder suicide (laughs) 
or you know or, or you know just it, the fact that there's beautiful music doesn't mean that we like it right it, part of it is part of the message so to speak or, or what the, the experience reveals to you is actually quite like it right and find it beautiful and romantic and all of these things so now what do we do right and that to me is much more interesting in terms of the way the complexity of the creatures that we are. Right. Yeah, I mean this you mentioned the the pure you mentioned purification earlier and and I think of this sort of purity test thing that is so prevalent now where you have to be completely and completely understood as pure across the board. And if there's any to use our, the word we've been using ambiguity, or if there's any even confusion about where the artist is coming from or what it might mean, or even, you know, I think sometimes it's even like if you're going to touch that subject, no matter what you have to say about it, it, we don't want to hear it, you know, or that's taboo somehow. And that, mm-hmm. that just seems like it's part of the death of everything that we're, we're doing. You know, I mean, if, if the point is to, get in there and, and dig in and, and, and raise questions or, or even challenge someone about themselves or, or anything. I think that that is just like the, a, a, a death knell for, for that, you know? And, um, it's, it's, it's strange to me and it's suffocating. And I think that it, to a degree, every artist is forced to contend with that, you know? Um, um, yeah, and I wonder if where that comes from. I mean, what's the desire of the artist then? Is it to be liked? Is right. it to be approved of? And then why Why do, I mean, I guess one of my gifts is I don't seem to have the need to be liked particularly. Yeah. But, but what is the insistence of that clarity, that purity, relative to the piece that I've made? Yeah, what do you where, where do you think that comes from actually? That's a good question. Well, I think maybe it does come from this culture in which in which we measure our worth by how many friends and followers we have. Right. I think that in part it comes from a kind of engagement with capitalism. Right, yeah. Where if if what we're selling in a sense is you know, as 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 you said, you know, like your brand or something. Mm-hmm then that has to be approved. Mm-hmm. But I also think that there's the, and, and there's the fear of what happens if I am disliked? Yeah. What happens if I am seen as uh, undesirable in some fashion? Right. But, but the work can't, you can't, I, I, for me, the artist can't afford that. Yeah if they're going to make this kind of work. Yeah. I mean, I totally, I totally agree. And I, I see it out in the world a little less and less. And yeah, I think social media does play a part because things snowball so much quicker. And the message of you're allowed to like this, you're not allowed to like this travels so much faster. So before you mm-hmm. even get a chance to contend with the piece itself, you already have your camp's opinion of it. You know, um, and, you know, I've talked to writers who have, I, I had, uh, Sarah, the writer Sarah Shulman on as a guest and talking about her comp- book, Conflict is Not Abuse, where she was getting, 
she was getting sort of eviscerated before the book even came out as if it was understood just based on what the themes of the book might be and how that's not acceptable, you know? And I think that that just makes it even worse. And I think that as the artist, again, you're just kind of in this place of they want, I mean, I think a lot of artists have this deep need to have their work be well-received, but I think it being well-received bleeds out into what you're saying, which is, am I liked? And then it's a longevity question of, will I now it's like, will I actually get canceled? And will I even be able to work again or continue to do my work? Oh, sure. And, and, and I'm sure Gertrude Stein in 1913 would have liked her work to have been liked. Sure. Yeah. But the problem is, is that, you know, we can sort of look back and think, oh, the 1950 suburbia was very amusing. The houses all looking alike and the people all being so conformist. But how is this so much different? Mm. You know, we're, we're creating suburban art mm. so that the neighbors approve the people down the block. It doesn't upset anyone. It fits in in the, the development. Right. So seamlessly, then we're producing suburban art. Yes, it will be liked. Right. But it, it will also be... It also won't last. Right. It'll be forgotten. Exactly. Yeah. And it'll also be, it'll be provincial in the way a suburban tract home yeah. would, would appear to a 1950 suburban tract home would appear to us to be provincial. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting how the safer, the safer the work, the, no matter how, I don't know what the word would even be successful, commercially successful it is. It almost is it, those things. They they actually really don't last. You know, it's almost like a a hug. It goes away. You know, but something that yeah. creates that discomfort is like a rock in the shoe that you can't take off. And that is, I think, that's at the root of 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 what an artist is even doing. To be that rock in the shoe is what excites me. Uh, these ideas that swirl around our heads that we maybe don't want or don't know what to do with. I mean, that's the stuff I I'm interested in, you know? Um, and I think that that's sort of being sidelined in a way that is disturbing now with, with, with cancel culture, which you've obviously experienced firsthand. I just think it's getting worse and worse. Yeah. And I think that part of it is, is that again, the rock and the shoe also can change the shoe. I mean, that's sort of what we're going for yeah. here. It's like when, you know, is, was Matisse, again, was Matisse always beautiful? We've now developed a way of seeing certain art as beautiful right. and even as comforting and safe right. that at the time it was first seen was very disruptive or uh, African art, which wasn't even considered to be art in from a western context right. or in a western context until the 1930s 1920 right and so but introducing a different a different definition of beauty one does a profound thing to how we understand beauty is that it's not frozen mm. it doesn't mean it's not it doesn't have a particular content it has a particular perspective mm. 
So if the perspective shifts on what what does it mean to be beautiful, what does it mean to be important or interesting, what does it mean to be of worth, so is it that if I have so many followers, then what I say must be important? Right. Or is it I start to say important things or do important work or beautiful work, and then people at different points will engage in it? Right. And that's how we know. Right. And engage in it more profoundly. It's a bit indigestible at first. Right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I have... So we, I, I, we need the time. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a weird relationship with this. This, I, what you're saying makes me think of sort of like when I, when someone goes to see a shitty tentpole movie. I think it. I think in a weird way, it actually makes people feel worse about themselves after they leave. In a in a, in a weird, mm-hmm. like, fascistic way, almost like the hero saves the day, saves the fucking world, whatever. And that is in the moment while, while watching it, it's entertainment and it's dumb and you can sort of project yourself onto that. But then when you leave, you're back to your normal life. And I think that it's almost like a drug and that that's what makes you keep coming back to that kind of shit. And I think that with something like what, what you do or a, a real artist who's, worth their salt or, or an interesting anyone that's going to do anything is if, if, if they're going to create something challenging in the experience of looking at it and digesting it, sure. You might get angry. You might get mad. You might get a lot of things, but what that, if, if, if you're as an audience member, if you let it, and if you are willing to work that out, I mean, there's a reason why it might be making you angry. There's a reason why it might be making you uncomfortable. And that is the thing that ultimately great art can do, which is that it doesn't necessarily have to change your mind. It just makes it sort of the perspective sort of shifts a little bit, you know, and you are suddenly engaging with things that you might not have engaged with before, you know, and that comes. Right. And appreciating, appreciating the, the broader, the broader possibilities. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I was going to, I just had this funny thought where I had this conversation with someone recently where they were telling me about a couple that knew that were having problems. And I guess one of the advice was to have a kind of date night. Mm-hmm. And it's a little bit in line with what you're saying. It's like going to see the superhero film. Mm-hmm. Because when I'm listening to this, I'm thinking, okay, so I understand that the function of the date night is you support in theory, have this nice evening mm-hmm. and that reminds you of how much you love and enjoy this person and then the relationship's better. Mm-hmm. But what if the date night, during the date night, you realize you're entirely bored by this person, <laughs> you dislike them, you're tired of that story, mm-hmm. they irritate you to no end, but then the date night also worked. Right. Right? It's right. just that it worked, it, it wasn't, a, it worked in the way of showing you something else right so it will still function it's just that it's not about making it better right right it's not about a restoration to a a feeling of everything's fine right right, like everything may not be fine Mm -hmm. and it may be not fine internally if you if you go to the rape jokes performance and you think these are odious and at some point you decide that even the sound of my voice is pleasurable. Mm. 
then that's something. Right. If you find a joke funny, then that's a, something that maybe you think is ugly in yourself, but maybe that also opens up a sense of what is it about desire, what is it about humor mm-hmm. that that is a little bit more complicated and profound. Right. And so does my perspective on on how I use humor, how I see humor being deployed. Yeah, that's it. I, that's interesting. The, the 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 Zizek introduction to the book talks a bit about um what you just hit on, which is this idea of at the end of I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but the 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 only way to talk about certain things is by making jokes about them, right? Um Right. Can you can you talk about that a little bit? Because I find that really, I think I, I think I really relate to that on a really deep level, but I don't know if I've thought about it in such a, in such a context. I mean, I, I think that's where you're at too, right? I mean, that, that is how you feel about these, this, this stuff, right? Yeah. And some of that I think can have to do with a bit of the absurdity of certain mm-hmm. things. Yeah. The, the the register of the obscene absurd. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, there's a way in which that if I described Auschwitz, it would sound like a ridiculous joke. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, we're going to make a factory. But this is what the factory is going to do. Right. It's absurd and it's, it's ludicrous and laughable. It's not laughable if it happens. Right. That as as or, you know when it happens, mm-hmm. but as a concept, it's it's just on the realm of the absurd. World War trench warfare. Mm-hmm. We're going to just line up millions of people and put them not too far away from each other and have them shoot at each other for a while. Right. Yeah. Right. For three years. <laughs> right. World War One. So, yeah, yeah. and I think. Yeah, and I think Beckett did a lot with that of mm-hmm. the the sort of the ridiculous, the absurd, and the joke right. of it. And it's a bit of the joke of of the idea of the divine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean the the humor. The, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. No, no, that's right. Uh, I was just going to say that the, this it, for me it gets back to that simple idea, and I think it was Vonnegut where I first read this. Something, and I'm paraphrasing again, but something about you know, if, if what, what am I supposed to do if I'm not going to make a joke about it? I'm just going to fucking cry. You know, it's like this abs- without, if the, the absurdism is there and it, it can be overwhelmingly depressing and sad because it, because it is on its face, that stuff is upsetting. Auschwitz, everything about it is fucking upsetting, but there's still the opportunity to look at it through humor you're you're actually able to look at it and sort of contend with it in a way that isn't overbearingly upsetting and you're and and you're sort of embracing the absurdity without actually and it's a way of telling another truth about it it was there's a book by i think his name is rudolph herzog uh-huh. Werner herzog's son mm. called humor in nazi germany or human hitler's germany mm-hmm. where he was really looking at jokes during this period. Oh, wow. And what's interesting is there's this great joke made about Dachau. I think it was made in maybe 1932 or something. But 
so the joke the joke is have you have you heard about Dachau? It's this amazing place. You go and there's barbed wire and the machine guns, and then you go a little further closer and there's more barbed wire and more machine guns, a little further you know, further in, more barbed wire and more machine guns, but I don't care what they do, I'm getting it. <laughs> and it's a perfect it's a it functions perfectly as a joke. Right. Because there's the the tragedy of it, yeah. which is the problem of is not getting into Dachau, mm-hmm. but there's also that that way of in, what the joke in part does is implicates you mm. right. in the world of the joke. If right. you get the joke, you get the joke. Right. Yeah. The joke, in some ways, is always on you. Right. Right. And so, what the joke, I think, formally does is open up that space of not exclusion Mm. and with the rape jokes one of the things that became very interesting to me was that i started thinking about how all desire is a little bit of a violation Mm. so i don't necessarily choose i don't consent to have desire it happens or it doesn't right i don't make a decision whether it's convenient or laudable or serve some greater purpose. Mm-hmm. I don't make a decision. I don't choose to have somebody have desire for me. It happens or it doesn't happen. Right. And I think when we're caught up in it, when it happens to us, there's many times where we do things that are a bit violative, whether it's on the level of you send the one text too many mm. or push the conversation 30 seconds longer than the other person really wants to push the conversation mm-hmm. or or the more extreme and some of that has to do with a lot of it has to do with you know, the individual's capacity to recognize these things and to abide by them and some of it has to do with the culture mm-hmm. and some of it has to do with you know, you know, various psychological psychochemical issues. Mm -hmm. But I think that the function of the joke is a bit of the acknowledgement of the violation of the experience of desire. Mm. And it's a kind of shaking your fist at the sky response. Right, yeah. You know, I had some comics tell me that when they were new doing stand-up, that they would sometimes use a rape joke in the beginning of the set. And I said, well, then this sounds like you felt the audience was raping you mm-hmm. on some metaphoric level. Mm-hmm. And so you were aggressing back. Right, right, right. First. Mm-hmm. So I could see it in a very local way. Right. But I also can see that in a structural way, aside from that piece, but in other pieces where, you know, the function of... In some ways, if art is the thing in the shoe, mm-hmm. like you say, then art is a, by nature a bit of an aggression. Right. There's going to be a pushback, but the artist also feels a bit maybe socially aggressed upon. Right, right, right. Yeah. You know, even if it's just the why is the world so ugly? <laughs> right, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I think also just on the heels of that, there's this thing where 
the less we're hearing jokes about potentially offensive or fucked up things or however you want to phrase it, the less ready we are to hear jokes about offensive or fucked up things. And it's like a muscle that kind of goes away, you know, and, and the, the, it, it sort of, it perpetuates itself and becomes its own form of an, uh, 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 of safe space in the negative sense. You know, it's like mm-hmm. the, the more we are not listening to things that might offend us or not saying things that might offend us or offend others, the more we're not going to hear those things from others. And it's just going to keep snowballing and going and going and going. And, and also bring the same critical light or eye to the thing we don't find offensive, right? which is often as ludicrous. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Often as ridiculous. Again, it's the thing of, Trump is an authority figure and we may want to mock him because we think he's a ridiculous authority figure. But if I turn around and think, well, but I think Bernie Sanders is as a ridiculous authority figure. But I just seem to like his brand better of authoritarianism. Right. Then the joke that I make has to be about, you know, who's your daddy really? Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and the fact of wanting a daddy. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the larger joke. Right. Yeah. So it's it's the fear of the thing. It's I think that it works in all of these ways, that there's a kind of criticality and ideally maybe a bit of a questioning of the of the master of the authority of the of I need to find the person the thing mm-hmm. that's going to do it the way I wish it would be done right and then I don't have to do it right yeah it is sort of like a desire it's like a the constantly seeking no responsibility really you know I don't want to have to decode or decipher or contend with these things uh, and I, you're putting it sort of in the hands of the authority figure, which is not, it just doesn't seem like the, the, the way to do it. It's, it's funny you mentioned Trump and Sanders in the same context, because I was watching the debates the other day and I was struck with really obviously not in terms of policy or message or anything, but Bernie really reminded me of Donald Trump, uh, in, on the night of, of his, debate the mm-hmm. first night and I, I it made me think he he's gonna be the nominee because I, I feel like there's such a rush to the uh the extreme voice that is sort of this authoritative this is the way it is and I'm gonna come at you kind of way and I'm gonna be defensive and and loud and boisterous and I feel right. like and have the two prize fighters go at it while I enjoy a movie. Exactly. Yeah. Because it really is, it really is a movie. I mean, now with CNN doing these debates, it's like, what the fuck even is this? Like, this is a TV show. These, these 15 second rebuttals and it's just like a cage match and everyone's just looking for the, 
someone to own someone else, you know, and to, to yeah. flex over and the that. quip. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And it's like, what I want is the soundbite. What I want is the quip. What I want is, I want the potato chip that tastes delicious at the moment. Right. And tastes exactly like I think a potato chip chip should taste like. Right. Yeah. But then where am I in all of that? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it, and, for a lot of people, it's the ultimate, it, it's in that, in what you're asking, where am I in all that? That is, that is the, that is ultimately the question or one of the questions that nobody really wants to ask about, about their own participation in, in, in the, uh, in these kinds of things, you know, where we're seeking this, this sort of like one upsmanship thing where we can cheer on our guy or our candidate, whatever. But why it, it's, it's sort of, if you really bear down and think about it, it's, it's actually really fucking weird, you know? Yeah, and part of it is is that, you know, in some ways we can analogize the present moment a bit toward a bit with the Vichy. Mm. It's like we're in this situation, the side we would like to have win may or may not win. Mm-hmm. And it's a little existential because I don't know if what I'm doing will make any difference at all. Right. It may very well not. Mm-hmm. I may, in fact, be shooting the wrong traitor. Right. Or I may be thinking, well, if I do this, it will advance the cause, but actually it's the completely wrong thing to do to advance the cause. Right. So we're thrown into that that situation of, do I act nonetheless with no guarantee and really no no compass in a sense, yeah. no definitive one? And take on that responsibility? Or do I just run away from it? Or farm it out to somebody else? Right, yeah. Yeah. uh, And to me, again, we go back to the reason I like art is is that there's the possibility of creating the, of putting the insoluble in a position where people can think through these things. Right. Because you don't have to decide. There's no imperative to decide. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I. I. I, I um. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I. Th- I. Th- I. When I think about what you do, uh, and before I let you go, I'd love to talk to you about the Gone with the Wind thing, the Twitter thing that that uh, you did, um, but. Before we get into that, I just I think that there's so much value in you doing what you do because there's so there's so much incentive to not do that, you know. I mean, it, it, to be iconoclastic or to be sort of a rock in the shoe is sort of like less viable now than ever out in the world. But it, that that alone makes it that much more. Um, imperative to 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 be it you know uh and i find it actually i I find it really inspiring um uh and yeah the the gone can you explain the gone with the wind thing to me uh for us gone with the wind there was a series of projects that i did using gone with the wind and part of it was that 
I saw Gone with the Wind as this piece of what seems to be sort of set Americana. Mm-hmm. So unlike, uh, say, Huckleberry Finn, mm-hmm. which periodically is purged from libraries and whatnot, right. um, Gone with the Wind just always seems to be there. There's the film, there's the book. It just seems unquestioned. Yes. And I became interested in this because Gone with the Wind, on, on the one hand, you, it is, it is a, it's a little snow globe and of a, of a romantic version of the South. Mm-hmm. And the, yet the, the palpable racism in it is, has, doesn't seem to evoke the same response. Right. And it continues to make a bunch of money. Right. And from a legal perspective, I started getting interested in it because, and this is a bit complicated, so I won't go into it too much, but the laws of copyright mm. were developed, and especially the laws of copyright around performance and voice and things like that, came out of uh, concepts that were developed around fugitive slaves. Mm. So... And the idea of sort of abstracted labor and expropriated labor and things like that. So one of the things that was interesting to me about Gone with the Wind was that the black characters in Gone with the Wind, by and large, are very set stereotypes. But you can't copyright a stereotype Mm -hmm. or a cliche. Right. So I started getting interested in, well, what what happens if I continually violate the copyright laws laws around Gone with the Wind? Mm. My defense being, and particularly the ones using about race, the the aspects of that book, because basically the idea being my defense would be, well, these are racist stereotypes, they can't be copywritten, so I win. Right. And also this notion of, well, this white woman in the 30s wrote this book using all using this sort of fantasies of white imagination. Mm-hmm. So she doesn't own that any more than I do, or I own it just as much as she does. Right. Because we have similar embodiments. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to steal them from her. <laughs> so I did a series of thefts where I did everything from republished Gone with the Wind in its entirety, but called it Gone with the Wind by Vanessa Place, <laughs> to republishing only the racist bits of Gone with the Wind and calling that Gone with the Wind by Vanessa Place. <laughs> To then I tweeted the whole book, um, which at one point I actually ended up through a series of circumstances meeting Jack Dorsey and I said, I think, and he had heard of the Bomb with Land Project on the Twitter one. And I said, yes, if, there, if Twitter has a library, as far as I know, it has one book in it, <laughs> which is Gone with the Wind. <laughs> yeah. um, but... But so so that was the idea, and part of the Twitter feed that was built into it was I had a picture of Hattie McDaniel as Mammy from the film as the avatar photo, and then a picture from or the cover of some sheet music from the 1800s mm. as the banner, and it's the exact same image. Right. It's the, it's the exact same kind of one being a performance of a caricature, the other directly just being a caricature. Right, right, right. Um, and at some point, people basically got wind of this project. 
and decided that it was racist. Yeah. And so there was a, a number of things that happened, performances getting canceled, et cetera, petitions and all of this around that project. And the fundamental objection being that I was exploiting African-Americans in it, order to do this project. Mm-hmm. It, it almost feels or, like a or, and, dis- and disregarding the feelings of people who come upon this language. Right. I mean, it, it feels like a willful misunderstanding or misinterpretation of what you might even, even might be up to. You know, I, I find that to be, um, for me, the hardest part to swallow. I mean, that everything you're doing about in that realm is, it's, it, it's every it's anything from like interesting to uh upsetting or whatever you know but it but 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 it's not to to go to to seek that out and to label it as something that is racist and that must be stopped seems to be willfully missing the point um and well, i think that part of the difficulty and part of the The stickiness of it was, for example, when there was this online petition, I remember reading the comments at, at one point just to see what people were saying, why they signed the petition. Mm-hmm. And the one that I really remember was somebody wrote that they were signing this petition because racism is bad. <laughs> and I thought, well, there is absolutely nothing. I mean, absolutely, that is that is a perfectly good reason to sign anything. Sure, yeah. That is a perfectly, and, and yes, that's, that's the sentiment. But to, but the difficulty is, is if we hold a philosophical position that racism is bad, then it seems that, 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 that would prompt a closer reading. Right. And a closer reading of of how that philosophic stance intersects or is intersects with this specific context. Right. Or this specific event or this specific work. Yeah. And the, and so the objection it appeared to me seemed to be about my piece, but not about Gone with the Wind. Yeah, right, right. Which is again and, a willful yeah, of the which point. is yeah, and, and and or if not willful, at least it again sort of goes back to that problem of I have to, I have to have an have that immediate reaction. And my immediate reaction has to be based upon a kind of principle that if this gets close to, if it comes, I have to keep the wall up. Right. If this starts to implicate a principle that I have, then I can't afford to read it. Right. I can't afford to think it through. I can't afford to see any level of 
is this engaging with is this is this engaging with this directly? Is it not engaging? Or what is this doing? Right. Yeah. You know, one of the one of the artist groups that I really love is in the seventies. There was a group um, in Russia that were sort of known as the Moscow Conceptualists, uh-huh. and a lot of their work it was incredibly smart because it was never censored because it really depended upon its readership. So if it could be read as pro-Soviet propaganda. Right. It could also be read, ironically, as dissident work, making fun of the Soviet. Right. So it, you had to, depending on the lens you put on it, it becomes one or the other, and that was the beauty of the work. Right. Was that it held both of those things. Right, yeah. Right, there's this, there's, right. there's almost an, a multiple interpretation possibility, and that is almost the brilliance of the work in itself. Right, which yeah. is actually, in a very profound way, that becomes, that, that maybe is the function of art. Right. It's like, I don't have to decide if it's for or against. I don't have to decide if it's beautiful or ugly. Right. right. I have to just make myself open to it see what it does and all the ways in which it functions Mm -hmm. and maybe and again maybe that's the richness of the experience right yeah 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 not the takeaway lesson right the the race to define the takeaway lesson is sort of defeats the whole purpose of the piece in the first place yeah right yeah 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 right and the beauty of the engagement right yeah yeah yeah, and the potential complexity of that engagement. I mean, you know, you're erasing mm-hmm. any potential uh, um, conflict or, or 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 appreciation, really, on any other level by racing to that. And I just think that, yeah, yeah, it's just, it's uh, it's a lot to fucking think about. But I'm glad there are still people yeah. like you out there doing what you're doing. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, all right. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate your time, Vanessa. We're coming up on over an hour here. Um, oh, this is well, been it really was, cool. It was lovely. It was lovely. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, thanks for your time and thanks for what you do. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate it. Okay, well, thank you. <laughs>